0: Hello, and welcome to The Space Above Us, Episode 19, Project Gemini Flight 7, Gemini 9A, Appointment with an Angry Alligator. The Space Above Us is a podcast about spaceflight history and not current events, but occasionally those two meet, and today I feel compelled to take a moment to note the passing of legendary astronaut John Glenn this past week. John Herschel Glenn died on December 8, 2016, nearly 55 years after he rode an Atlas launch vehicle into orbit and into history. His orbital flight captured the imagination of the world in a way that far surpassed the brief flights of his American suborbital predecessors. It proved that America could directly compete with the Soviet Union in this new arena, and in some ways surpass it, even at this early stage. Yes, Russia had beaten the U.S. into space and into orbit, but the cosmonauts that flew aboard Vostok 1 and 2 had limited control of their vehicles, and were mostly thought of as a payload rather than as a pilot. Additionally, both Soviet cosmonauts bailed out of their capsules and landed under a personal parachute as planned. Glenn put his diminutive spacecraft through its paces while on orbit and remained with the vehicle all the way until splashdown. In my mind, this makes the flight of Friendship 7 more complete and perhaps more impressive than the flights of Vostok 1 or 2. Glenn later went on to a successful career in politics, serving as a U.S. Senator for 24 years. And as we will learn in a far future episode of this podcast, he also became the oldest person to fly in space when he served as a payload specialist on STS-95 in 1998. With Glenn's passing, we note the end of an era. He was the last surviving member of the Mercury 7. Those early pioneers were the first to step forward and put their lives on the line to further our understanding of spaceflight. Alan Shepard, Gus Grissom, John Glenn, Scott Carpenter, Wally Shira, Gordon Cooper, Deke Slayton. These names will not soon be forgotten. To echo the famous words of Scott Carpenter, I say, Godspeed, John Glenn. Last time, we discussed the truncated flight of Gemini 8, which flew only four years after Glenn's flight aboard Friendship 7. The flight was the first in American, or Soviet, history in which two spacecraft docked while in orbit, with Neil Armstrong serving as command pilot and David Scott serving as pilot. Soon after the elation of the docking, however, the situation took a turn, or rather an alarming spin, for the worse. Unbeknownst to the crew, an attitude control thruster had become stuck, sending the spacecraft spinning wildly out of control. Thanks to the quick actions of the crew, they returned home safely, but the mission was a bust. It served as an important lesson in just how quickly problems could arise while in the unforgiving environment of space. It also showed how important the role of mission control was. Mission controllers stated that had the incident occurred while the spacecraft was in contact with the ground, they could have told the crew about the stuck thruster sooner and perhaps salvaged the mission. But the dubious outcome of Gemini 8 was not the only event casting a shadow over NASA at that time. The primary crew of Gemini 9 was to be Elliot C. of the New 9 and Charlie Bassett of the 14, or Astronaut Group 3. Tom Stafford and Gene Cernan had been named as the backup crew. On the morning of February 28, 1966, C., Bassett, Stafford, and Cernan climbed aboard two T-38 jets, intending to fly to St. Louis in order to inspect their spacecraft under construction at the McDonnell plant. They had called ahead and learned that weather conditions at their destination were not great, and they worsened during the course of the flight. Low clouds contributed to poor visibility, and both crews were forced to abort their landings and go around for a second pass. C opted to perform a wide sweeping circle while staying under the cloud cover in order to keep the runway in sight. Unfortunately, somewhere between the unusual maneuver, the poor visibility, and perhaps pilot error, control of the vehicle was lost, and it slammed into the roof of Building 101, where their spacecraft was being built before crashing into a courtyard several hundred feet away. Both pilots were killed instantly. It was a sobering reminder that even the best pilots in the world can still be defeated by bad circumstances and a moment's misjudgment. For the first time in NASA history, a backup crew replaced the primary crew. So, while taking a moment to remember these lesser-known astronauts who gave their lives for the space program, let's meet our new primary crew. Commanding this mission, and replacing Elliot C., would be Tom Stafford. We've already covered his background in the episode on his first flight, Gemini 6A, so take a look at that episode if you're interested. This was his second of four spaceflights. Replacing Charlie Bassett was Eugene Gene Cernan. Cernan was born on March 14, 1934, in Chicago, Illinois. He attended Purdue University, receiving a bachelor's degree in electrical engineering, and the U.S. Naval Postgraduate School, receiving a master's degree in aeronautical engineering. In between those, he became a naval aviator as part of the Navy ROTC program flying the FJ-4 Fury and the A-4 Skyhawk fighter jets. Shortly after finishing his master's degree, he was selected by NASA as part of Astronaut Group 3. This was his first of three spaceflights, and at the time of this writing, Cernan was the last man to set foot on the moon. While we're introducing new astronauts, it's already time to introduce astronaut group five. Joining NASA in April of 1966 was another group of remarkable pilots. There's a whopping 19 people in this group, so I'm just going to quickly blast through the list. Bonus points if you can pick up on some future familiar faces. Vance Brand. John Bull, Gerald Carr, Charlie Duke, Joe Engel, hey, we know him from the X-15, Ron Evans, Edward Givens, Fred Hayes, Jim Irwin, Don Lind, Jack Lasma, Ken Mattingly, Bruce McCandless, Ed Mitchell, William Pogue, Stu Rusa, Jack Swaggert, Paul Weitz, and Al Warden. Poking fun at the Mercury 7, this group dubbed themselves the Original 19. After the shorter-than-expected Gemini 8, a lot of hopes were pinned on Gemini 9. Like 8, 9 was a complex mission that tried to cram a lot of new techniques into one short flight. The planned four-day flight included rendezvous and docking with an Agena, along with multiple re-rendezvous trying different approach profiles. In addition to this already challenging goal was America's second EVA. It feels like a long time since Ed White drifted serenely away from Gemini 4, But with 5, 6A, and 7 emphasizing duration and rendezvous, EVA just wasn't a priority. Cernan's task was to test the Astronaut Maneuvering Unit, or AMU, provided by the Air Force. This was a sort of rocket-powered backpack that the Air Force had developed with an eye towards using it as part of the manned orbiting laboratory. Ostensibly, it was just for enabling greater mobility while on spacewalks, but the Air Force definitely had in mind the possibility of snooping around and potentially disabling enemy satellites. The AMU had 12 thrusters that burned hydrogen peroxide to enable the astronaut to fly around with or without a tether, though this test would be with the tether. The astronaut controlled the vehicle with hand inputs at the end of armrests. If this all sounds familiar, it should, because it sounds a whole lot like the extravehicular support pack from Gemini 8. The key difference is that the ESP provided extra oxygen and extra fuel for a handheld thruster gun, like Ed White's, while the AMU was sort of a little vehicle on its own. One fun fact about the AMU is since one of the thruster plumes would actually go between Cernan's legs, he had to wear a special metalized insulating layer around his pants to prevent burns. You know, the things that astronauts put up with. On May 17th, 1966, the stage was set for the most complex spaceflight to date. Stafford and Cernan climbed aboard Gemini Spacecraft number 9 on Launch Pad 19, while technicians made the final preparations for the launch of the Atlas and Agena, just over a mile away. At 10.12 a.m., the silvery Atlas roared to life and propelled its payload skyward. All was not well, however. Just a few minutes later, one of the engines on the Atlas suddenly pitched all the way over and stayed there, the launch vehicle soon followed, executing a full reversal in attitude and actually pointing back towards Cape Canaveral. The Agena did not appreciate this dynamic move and soon broke off of the Atlas, with both vehicles tumbling out of control all the way down to the Atlantic. For those keeping score at home, this is the second out of three Agenas intended for rendezvous targets that has failed to achieve orbit. Lockheed, the manufacturer of the Agena, was understandably upset at what appeared to be yet another failure, but this time the blame lay squarely on the shoulders of Martin, who was not some hapless engineer, but rather the company responsible for the Atlas. A short circuit in the autopilot had caused the spurious engine command and doomed the Agena before it ever had a chance to fly. There was initially some concern that the Agena may have failed anyway, based on some unusual signals in its telemetry. But upon reviewing the launch footage, it was determined that the Agena passed through the trail of ionized air behind the rocket, and the unexpected electric charge caused the strange behavior observed in the Agena. So, Agena was off the hook this time. As the Gemini 9 crew rode the elevator back down, Tom Stafford must have been wondering what he had ever done to deserve two lost Agenas. Meanwhile, NASA wondered what they were going to do about a target vehicle. The Agena may have been off the hook for the launch failure, but that didn't change the fact that its only rendezvous partner at this point might be some intrepid fish. Luckily, there was a backup plan. There's always a backup plan. The Agena had always had a somewhat troubled development history. It had actually nearly been scrapped in favor of a far less sophisticated rendezvous target, such as the radar evaluation pod that flew on Gemini 5. After the Agena propulsion system exploded during Gemini 6, it became clear that a backup needed to be developed, just in case. What they came up with was the Augmented Target Docking Adapter, or ATDA. Where Agena was a sophisticated spacecraft capable of attitude control, propulsion, and all sorts of stuff, ATDA was not. It was more or less a docking port slapped onto an empty aluminum can let me paint you a word picture. On top was the ascent shroud, or what might be called the payload fairing today. This was just a nice smooth conical shape made out of fiberglass that would protect the docking collar during ascent and make the whole vehicle more aerodynamic. Once on orbit, it would split in two and be jettisoned from the vehicle. Underneath the shroud was the target docking adapter, the same system as on the Agena, This is the thing with the docking cone, the rigidizing links, and all that good stuff. Below that was the equipment section, which stores, you guessed it, some equipment. Mostly electronics. It was painted with black and white stripes to help the astronauts spot it and tell which way it was pointed. Below that was a reaction control system module that provided attitude control for the vehicle. Again, just to help new listeners, attitude control is just aerospace speak for controlling which way we're pointing. And lastly, below that was a battery module that provided electrical power to run all that other stuff. The whole thing was 5 feet wide and 11 feet tall. As you may have noticed, there was no propulsion section in that list. You can think of it like a mercury capsule. It has attitude control so it can point wherever it wants, but it can't change its orbit. All of this was placed on top of a spare Atlas rocket that had been specifically ordered for this very situation. Since everyone had planned on this potentially happening, the new target vehicle was on the new rocket and ready to go just two weeks later. That's impressive. Alright, so let's do this again. June 1st, 1966. Astronauts up, eggs, steak, coffee, toast, orange juice, suit up, van to the launch pad. We all know the routine by now. Two seconds after 10am, Cape Canaveral sent yet another Atlas rocket into the heavens, this time carrying the funny little ATDA. And this time, no problem. The Atlas worked great and deposited the ATDA in almost precisely the orbit they were hoping for, a nearly circular orbit of 298 kilometers by 300 kilometers. The only nitpick was that there was an unusual telemetry signal that indicated the ascent shroud may not have jettisoned. But hey, telemetry errors happen. It's probably fine. Foreshadow. With the target vehicle safely whizzing around the Earth, all eyes turned to the Titan II and the renamed Gemini 9A. With three minutes on the countdown clock, Ground Control sent the final navigation updates to the Gemini computer in preparation for the launch. Or at least they tried to. Something went wrong with the computer and they weren't able to update it. Rendezvous launches have a pretty narrow window, and they had blown right through it trying to fix the computer. The launch was scrubbed, and yet again, the Gemini 9A crew climbed out and headed down the elevator. At this point, people were starting to joke that Tom Stafford was jinxed or something. He had had two Agenas fail on him, and now been through his fourth scrub in two flights. Pad leader Gunter Vent bestowed upon Stafford the title, Mayor of Pad 19. Two days later, Stafford and Cernan were back for another try. Upon arriving at the pad, they discovered that the pad crew had left a sign on the elevator reading, Tom and Gene, notice that the down capability for this elevator has been removed. Let's have a good flight. And on top of that, once they arrived at the Gemini spacecraft, they discovered another sign, this time from the backup crew, Jim Lovell and Buzz Aldrin, that read, We were kidding before, but not anymore. Get yourselves in space, or we'll take your place. The good-natured ribbing seems to have worked, since despite another round of computer problems, at precisely 8.39 and 50 seconds a.m., the mayor of Pad 19 at last departed upwards instead of downwards. One additional wrinkle in this mission that I didn't mention before was a tweak to the rendezvous profile. Up until this point, rendezvous had been accomplished in four orbits. However, rendezvous around the moon would have a shorter timeline more like three orbits, so there was a desire to attempt a compressed rendezvous. This meant that the instant the spacecraft separated from the booster, the crew had to get to work on the tricky task of catching up with the ATDA. Once they were free, they performed an Insertion Velocity Adjust Routine, or IVAR, to correct for any errors in the initial orbit. Over the course of the next few hours, they performed the series of phasing and plane change maneuvers we're familiar with at this point. One more change was that one of the burns was essentially three burns combined. By pointing at just the right angle, they could tweak multiple aspects of their orbit simultaneously. Before long, the target was in sight. Not only was the target in sight, but so were all of its running lights. This was good news. Since one of the lights was inside the Ascent Shroud, it seems that the shroud had jettisoned successfully after all. As the bright point of light in the distance grew into the ATDA, however, it quickly became clear that all was not well. When Gemini 9A pulled up alongside the ATDA, they discovered that the telemetry signals had told the truth after all. The ascent shroud had opened, but one of the metal bands holding it together had not fired its pyrotechnic charge, preventing it from opening entirely. What resulted looked like, in Tom Stafford's words, an angry alligator, Do yourself a favor and look up Gemini Angry Alligator on your favorite image search and you'll see that Stafford wasn't far off the mark. This was a big problem. If the Ascent Shroud was stuck, there would be no way to dock with the vehicle. And with a metal strip that was under high tension and could snap at any time, EVA near the ATDA was also out of the question. That one small strip of metal dashed all hopes of completing the mission they had trained so hard for. One quick inspection showed why they'd been able to see the running light from a distance. It was reflecting off the inside of the shroud, giving the appearance that it was out in the open. This being a NASA space mission, a lot of smart people started trying to work out a solution right away. Was it possible to send Cernan out to cut the metal strip? Yes, but it'd be likely to slice into his spacesuit. Could the docking cone be wiggled around with the rigidizing linkages and push the shroud off? Yes, but no. Or, my favorite, suggested by Stafford, could the crew simply jam the Gemini's nose into the open end of the shroud and wrench it off? No dice. Perhaps Stafford was jinxed after all. I'm sure you're wondering what caused this unusual failure. As always, with situations like this, it is illustrative of the difficulty of completing complex tasks with large organizational structures. Without getting into all the details on which company made what and how it usually works, here's what happened. When it came time to finish attaching the Ascent Shroud, the ground crew from a different company than usual thanks to the ATDA didn't have any experience with it. Add in the fact that the usual guy had to leave to attend to his pregnant wife, and what resulted was a bundle of cables not connected to where they should be, but rather neatly taped to the side of the spacecraft. Whoops. But all was not lost. For one thing, this presented a great opportunity to attempt station keeping with a disabled vehicle. The ATDA was slowly rotating, but Stafford managed to move in and match the rotation, allowing a close inspection of the little spacecraft. This kind of technique would be useful when repairing a damaged satellite, and I'm sure the guys over at the Air Force had some ideas on what could be done with the ability to closely inspect an uncooperative spacecraft. And while they couldn't dock with the ATDA, they could still try out a series of different rendezvous maneuvers. Several times, the crew backed away from the vehicle, sometimes as far as several hundred miles, only to return using a different technique. The most challenging of these was meant to simulate an Apollo command module descending to rendezvous with a disabled lunar module rising from the surface. Such a maneuver would have to take place with the moon as a backdrop as opposed to the darkness of space making spotting the target much harder. The 9A crew couldn't quite make it to the moon, but they did attempt the maneuver while over the barren Sahara Desert to try to simulate the effect. The verdict was that spotting the target vehicle among all the distracting land features was impossible, and they were forced to fall back on the radar system built into the nose of their spacecraft. Okay, so they couldn't dock with the ATDA, which was a bomber but at least they were able to try out some different rendezvous techniques, and we still have that big EVA to look forward to. Stafford didn't want Cernan anywhere near the ATDA when he ventured outside the spacecraft, so he changed to a slightly different orbit and left the little vehicle behind. The crew awoke on the third day with nothing but the EVA in mind. They depressurized the cabin, Cernan opened his hatch, and began a tough day on the job. Even getting out of the hatch is pretty difficult with these suits. Imagine wearing a suit that's a balloon. Every time you bend a limb, it would be fighting you to snap back to the default position. All of the spacesuits suffered from this problem to a certain extent, but the beefier EVA suit, especially with the additional thermal protection around the legs, was particularly bad. And once he got through the hatch, things didn't get much better. Cernan first had to work his way back to the rear of the equipment module using Velcro patches on his hands and the side of the spacecraft to make his way there. This sounds like it should be super easy, but that's because you're used to thinking with gravity. Let's say you put your hand on a Velcro patch and pull yourself towards it. There's not going to be anything to slow you down, so unless you want to overshoot and keep going, you now have to pull in the other direction to counteract the original pull. Every action has an equal and opposite reaction, and without gravity firmly pulling your feet to the ground, those opposite reactions can become really troublesome. Cernan eventually made his way to the AMU in the back of the spacecraft, but things just got worse from there. Transferring tethers, deploying armrests, and other AMU startup tasks were exhaustingly difficult, even with the aid of some handholds and foot stirrups. Cernan's heart rate spiked as high as 180 BPM, and this is a supremely fit Navy pilot who had been training for this mission for months. Eventually he became so overworked and so overheated that the visor of his helmet started to fog up. The environmental control system on the suit just couldn't keep up and, they learned later, actually ran out of water eventually. Cernan soon came to an unhappy conclusion. There was no way to proceed. Even if he managed to get himself strapped to the AMU, he wouldn't be able to see where he was going and what he was doing and he was worried that getting out of the apparatus could be just as bad as getting in. Clearly, EVA needed to be rethought. Thankfully, Cernan was able to slowly make his way back to the hatch, and with Stafford helping by pulling his feet, re the capsule. He was overheated and exhausted, but after two strenuous hours outside the spacecraft, he was safe. The crew, perhaps desperate to salvage something from this mission, spent much of their remaining time focused on the onboard experiments, to the point that they became irritated if interrupted by the mission controllers. After 45 trips around the world, Stafford jettisoned the equipment module, including the unused AMU much to the Air Force's dismay, fired the retro rockets, and Gemini 9A was on its way home. Re-entry passed uneventfully, and they splashed down barely a mile away from their target landing point before being recovered by the USS Wasp. What are we to make of Gemini 9A? This troubled mission was merely frustrating instead of life threatening like Gemini 8, but clearly was not a success. It could be taken as a sign that perhaps NASA was trying too much, too fast. The EVA is a great example. Again, it's important to remember that this was only the second American EVA. Ed White's task had been to bounce around with the zip gun for 20 minutes take in the scenery, and get back in the capsule. The very next EVA was to be a two-hour series of complex tasks involving multiple vehicles and multiple new techniques. I think NASA probably was overreaching a bit at this point, but I think that's okay. By recruiting the best pilots in the world and training them incessantly for their missions, they had sort of bought the ability to push their work to the limit and occasionally over it, without necessarily inviting disaster. Cernan's EVA could easily have ended in tragedy, but thanks to both his physical and mental training, he had the judgment necessary to end it early, and the stamina necessary to safely return to his spacecraft. Pushing the limit was just what was required if we were going to have any chance of accomplishing the moonshot by the end of the decade. And in a way, this mission is kind of what Project Gemini was all about. If there was one bit of happy news Tom Stafford can take from this mission, it was that the mayor of Pad 19 would never again be launching from that site. Don't worry, he still has a couple more flights, but he'll be flying in something a little bigger than a Titan II. Next time, we'll continue to push the envelope. What's the follow-up to trouble on a mission that had a rendezvous and a complicated EVA? How about a mission with two rendezvous and a complicated EVA? I told you we hadn't seen the last of that Agena from Gemini 8. Also, real quick, I've had a small surge in listeners thanks to a post I made on Reddit recently, so I just want to say, hi, I'm JP, I hope you're enjoying the show. Any and all feedback is welcome via my email, jp at thespaceabove.us, Twitter at spaceaboveus, or the show's Facebook page, facebook.com slash thespaceaboveus. And if you are enjoying the show, telling your friends, subscribing, rating, reviewing, and all that stuff is greatly appreciated. I still have over 150 missions to cover, and the more people I can share this with, the better. Ad Astra, catch you on the next pass.